I'm Luke. I'm one of the pastors and part of our teaching team and uh, thrilled that you're here with us this morning. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, but you would like one to follow along today, uh, put your hand up. Our ushers are coming forward. They've got Bibles and they'll be able to get those to you. I was going to tell you all about how you should rush out and buy uh, our new All of Life is All for Jesus t-shirts, but we sold out at the first service. All those scoundrels at the 9 a.m. just wiped us out almost, unless you're, I think there's maybe one medium and if you, in double X, you're good. We've got some double X's, but we'll order more and I would love uh, for you to, you know, we'll let you know when those, when those come back. So anyway, we're kicking off this new series today called We Are Here. My question as we begin is, how's your sense of direction? How's your sense of direction? Are you a person that like, oh yeah, I, I always kind of know where I am. I just figure out where's the sun or where's the mountains or where's the, or are you one of these people that are just lost all the time? Like, like, oh my gosh, if I lived in a time before GPS, I'm just done, right? Like, which are you? Well, this is actually like a medical reality is that in the middle of your brain is this thing called the hippocampus. And the hippocampus, among other things, helps determine kind of how well you navigate space. There are there are two kinds of cells, at least, in the hippocampus, but the two that, that relate to space, one is called place cells. And place cells are the ones that help you store memories related to your surroundings and your place, where you kind of go somewhere and you're like, I think I've been here before. That's activating your place cells. Then there's what are called grid cells. And grid cells kind of get into spatial relationships. And, and so your ability to kind of have a sense of direction is actually very much connected to your brain. They've done research on, Lundy, uh, on, on taxi cab drivers in London who actually they found have larger uh, hippocampi than most people because that has grown because their sense of direction has just gotten so good. So I, I found a website the other day. They were asking, this is a website that, that kind of is asking about the correct use of English in certain ways. And someone, I think, from another country asked this. They said, when we travel around, some people get lost more easily than others since they cannot remember directions correctly. Is there any specific word for these kind of people? Right? They're trying to figure out, what's the English word for this? And everyone put answers, and people voted on what the best answer was. The best answer that came back was, the correct word in this situation would be male. <laughs> now, hey, I, I actually think it's quite the opposite, but, but, but maybe you're a person that just, you know, you, you can't remember directions very well. But my guess is your sense of direction isn't so bad that you've decided you have to put a giant pink lobster in front of your house like this one. This is actually a, a real lobster, and it's, not a, it's a real fake lobster that, that this woman, Sharon Roseman in Denver, Colorado, has had to pull, put outside of her house in order to help her remember where she lives. She doesn't have dementia, but she has what's called developmental topographical disorientation, DTD, which means that from the time she was very little, she struggled to know where she was. In fact, when she was five years old, this is all featured in a documentary that was put together called Lost Every Day, that's about her. At five years old, she was out playing in the backyard with her mom, and she said, Mom, where, are, where, where is this? Why are we playing in these people's yards? And she said, well, this is your yard. She said, I don't feel like I've ever seen this before. And her mom said, well, don't ever tell anybody. And so she just hid this for years and years. Actually, when she was a young mom, she uh, could hear her babies in the night crying, but she would get up, and she couldn't remember the layout of the house. And so she would have to wander through the dark house listening to the cries so that she could eventually get there to comfort her children. 
This was finally diagnosed about 10 years ago, as I said, called DTD, developmental, meaning she's had it her whole life, topographical disorientation, meaning that sense of spatial uh, awareness is just not not very much there. And now, my guess is most of us don't have that. It's a very, very rare condition. But when we think about the stuff that's important in life, a lot of us suffer from DTD. We just get so busy going through life and getting our jobs and and caring for our families and doing our thing that we never really stop to consider, where am I right now? Like, what, what? And, and so as a result, we often feel very lost. In fact, those of you who are followers of Christ, this is how you would describe yourself before you came to faith. You would say, I once was lost, but now I'm found. And there's this spiritual and emotional directional disorder that it seems like a lot of us have. This is one of the reasons why we as a lead team, as all the redemption lead pastors get together, we do a thing that we call a red dot exercise. And the reason we call it a red dot exercise is because when you go to a mall and you walk up to the thing with the map, you always look for the red dot, right? And the red dot always says, you are here. That's what the series is named after. Not you are here, but we are here. And we do a red dot exercise that says, hey, before we get started in this meeting, where are you right now? How are you doing? What's going on? Where are you with God? Where are you emotionally? How are you, how are you doing? Now, that may sound overwhelming, and you don't want every conversation to be about that, but we got to have some conversations about that personally, don't we? Otherwise, we just sort of drift through life, and we don't ever really think, where, where am I? And so what this series is about is a red dot conversation for this congregation. This is us asking collectively, where are we? Where are we at this season in our church's history? Where are we? geographically speaking, in terms of where physically God has placed us, and where are we in terms of this cultural moment. That's what we're going to look at today, where we are in this season of our church, where we are in this place, and where we are in this cultural moment. Now, the reason this is so important is because uh, as I think about my role as a leader, every time that anybody's leading something, they're usually doing one of three things. And if you're a leader, you might want to even just write this down. This is, this is for free. This isn't even the main sermon. But, but you can just use this if you want. If you lead something, if you're a coach or if you're a boss or if you're a leader in some sort of area, when you're leading, you're almost always doing one of three things. Uh, first, you might be uh, defining present reality. That's the first role of a leader. Define present reality. That's what this sermon is going to be about today. Defining present reality. Where are we? Where are we right now? The second thing that a leader does is a leader has to dream a preferred future. So you define present reality, but then you dream a preferred future. You say, okay, here we are, but we want to go there, right? That's the role of a leader is to say, things are good where we are, but we need to go somewhere even better. Or things are bad where we are, and we need to go somewhere good, or whatever the case might be. A leader defines present reality and dreams a preferred future. That's what we're going to talk about next week. Then the third thing that a leader does is a leader has to design the path to get there. So define present reality, dream a preferred future, design the path. That's what this series is. So today's message is defining present reality. Next week is dreaming a preferred future. And the rest of it is talking about the path of how we're going to get to that preferred future future. Now, this idea of figuring out where we are, we don't just make that up. We actually get it from the scriptures, and we get it in the passage that we read together just a moment ago. So if you have your Bible, look again at Acts chapter 17. It's fascinating. The Apostle Paul is traveling throughout the Mediterranean. He's planting new churches. He's preaching the gospel. 
And almost everywhere he goes, he goes to a synagogue and he begins to tell them about how all of the hopes and expectations they've had as they've looked at the Old Testament are now fulfilled in Jesus. But Paul gets to Athens and he does something different. Why? Because Athens is a different place. And so he begins to walk around. He begins to look. He begins to explore. It says in verse 16, now while Paul was waiting for them, waiting for the friends who'd sent him ahead, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now that word saw does not mean just that he, that he viewed it, that he noticed it, but that he also considered it. He thought about this. Paul is walking around. His, his friends, his partners in ministry aren't quite caught up to him yet. They've sent him from another place where they've been persecuted. And he's walking around the city and he's noticing some things and he's considering some things and he's seeing some things. And what he sees in particular is that the city is full of idols. He says, wow, this is a really incredibly religious place. Everywhere I go, there's an idol to this and an idol to that and a God of this and they worship this. In fact, you notice in uh, verse 23, uh, he, he says, as I passed along and observed the objects of worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. In other words, the people in Athens, they were so religious that they had actually gone, well, we worship this God and this God and this God and this God and this God, but just in case we forgot one, let's make an altar to the unknown God and just cover all our bases. Well, Paul notices that. He, he says, before I try to dream a preferred future for these people in Christ, I need to define reality. Where am I? What am I seeing? What am I noticing? Where are we? And so that's what he begins with doing. He's just watching and seeing and noticing. And then that informs then the way that he begins to dream that preferred future and the way he begins to talk about Jesus. He doesn't begin by saying, men of Athens, you all know the Old Testament, because they didn't. But rather, look at what he does in verse 22. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. You know what, men of Athens? I know, man, you guys all are religious. Way to go. You're thinking about God. In fact, I notice you're so religious, you have this one altar to the unknown God. Good news, I'm here to tell you about him. Paul sees what's going on. That allows him to really love the people and then speak accordingly. See, Paul really has two options once he sees what he sees. First option is he can retreat. He can say, you know what? This place looks hard. This place looks difficult. I mean, everybody's worshiping all these different things. They're not going to believe all of a sudden that now there's just one God when they've been filled with polytheistic. All like, that's too big of a sell. They're not going to go for that. He, he also could go, you know what? This is just difficult. I mean, everywhere I've been going, they've been persecuting me. You know what I'll do instead? I'll just walk around Athens you know, get some good Greek food, get a hero, maybe some baklava, just taking the sights, and then I'll wait till my Christian buddies come, and they'll come, and we'll just kind of experience a nice little Christian cocoon of safety. He doesn't do that. In fact, he doesn't even wait for the guys to come. He does the second thing, is he moves toward the people proclaiming the love of Jesus, having perceived, having observed, having seen, having considered where they were, he moved toward them in love. He says in verse 23, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And this is the invitation of this passage and this is the invitation of this series that we will see where we are this moment in time, this place God has put us, this cultural situation, that we will see that 
and in love begin to proclaim to our community, here's the one who will answer everything you've been longing for. His name's Jesus. Why don't we have the ability to do that very well? Here's what John Stott, the commentator, here's what he says about this. He says, we do not speak like Paul because we do not feel like Paul because we do not see like Paul. That was the order. He saw, he felt, he spoke. It all began with his eyes. When Paul walked around Athens, he did not just notice the idols. The Greek verb used three times, verse 16, 22, 23, means to consider. So he looked and looked and thought and thought until the fires were kindled within. Now, the advantage that Paul had was he was going into a new culture. He was going into a new place. And when you go to a new, new place, you see stuff that you don't see when you're just in it every day, right? Like if, if you came over to my house, I'm sure you would notice some pictures that are slightly crooked, hanging on our walls that I haven't noticed because I just look at them every day. I don't see them because it's always hardest to see the stuff you're closest to, right? It's, it's the proverbial, you know, fish that gets asked, how's the water? And he answers, what's water? Or you just don't know it because you're in it every day. And so what this series is, what we're doing together in this message, especially is to ask this question, where are we? And the answer comes back in three different forms. As I've already told you, we are here First, in this season. First, in this season in our church's history. We're approaching, get this, we're approaching our 10th birthday, our 10th anniversary. January will be our 10th anniversary as a church. And I just think that's amazing. Um, it, it just has gone by so fast. I have a 10-year-old daughter. She just turned 10 this week. And I look at her and I think about how fast her life has gone and go like, this, she's been alive kind of this whole church's journey. And it's really kind of fun to go, oh, wow, we're just 10 like sometimes there's so many people here and things can get so complex. You go like, we must be a teenager. No, we're just 10. <laughs> we're just 10. And it's amazing what God has done in this last decade. I've been, as you might imagine, just reflecting on this as we approach this 10th anniversary in January. And it hit me the other day that 10 years ago, this time of year, I was having a lot of meetings with people who were interested in maybe being part of our church plant. And the meetings would always, they were just super fun because people would kind of go, now, it sounds exciting that you're starting something new, but why would you, like, do we really need another church? Do we really need, and I'd have this opportunity to talk about how church planning is one of the most effective ways of introducing people to the faith because people who normally aren't interested in faith tend to come when something's new. And how the reality is that people are often inclined who are Christians to invite their friends and to share the gospel with people because if they don't, no one else comes, <laughs> right? And so we talked about all that and then we get to the end of the conversation and oftentimes if the people were still interested, because a lot of times I'd try to talk them out of it. Like, you probably don't want to do this. This is going to be too hard. You're going to have to commit too much. You're going to, you know. and, but I try to do that. But at the end, they would often say, well, how can I help? And I'd say, well, gosh, there's a lot of ways to help. You could, there's ways to serve. There's ways to volunteer. There's ways to give. There's a lot of different things you could do. But here's the thing. Can I tell you what I'd really like you to do? I'd love you to help us create a, a church culture that 10 years from now would really honor God and would really be fun to be part of. And they go, yeah, that sounds, that sounds cool. We talk about what that looked like. Well, here's what hit me the other day. It hit me that it's 10 years from now. 
right? Because back when I was having those meetings, back when I was saying that, I could have said 70 years from now, 100 years from now, a million years from now. I mean, 10 years from now seemed infinitely far away. And here we are 10 years later, and I'm going, oh my gosh, God, thank you. He's answered that prayer. I think this is a church culture that honors God. We want to make him known. We take God seriously, but it's also a church that is, is fun to be part of. We don't take ourselves that seriously. You know, we, ha- we have fun. I, wouldn't that be a good reason to, to go to church? Or you invite someone to church, why should I go to church? Because it's fun. Because it's fun. It's fun to be around people who don't take themselves that seriously. It's fun to be around people who don't think that they have to be the savior of the world. It's fun to be around people who are loving and kind, and I think there's a culture of that here. And so that's a beautiful thing, but, but I reflect on that, and I go, okay, if that's the season we're in, is 10 years from that point, then this next season has to be really re-articulating that culture, really pushing into, how do we not lose that? How do we, how do we not become a place that doesn't take God seriously, but takes ourselves? We don't want that. So what do we do? And what's especially interesting in this season of our church's history is not just the 10-year mark, but what next year we're going to be doing, which is moving into a new building that's right next door. If you haven't seen this or you don't know about this, here's what I want you to do. At the end of the service, walk out the front doors and look left. And when you look left, you'll see a huge construction project, and that's our project because we own that 10 and a half acres, and we're in the process of building uh, what will be about twice our current square footage. We'll have about 800 seats in that worship space, tons of outdoor space, lots of great kids space. Uh, Almost all the parking lot is actually already done, which is pretty cool. We're going to put up, um, and and you can actually mark your calendar for this, November 12th at 9 a.m., you can join us. That's Monday. That's Veterans Day. Your kids will be out of school. Join us at 9 a.m. where we're going to put up a 60-foot steel cross. And the construction folks have said, hey, y'all can come out, we're going to pray, and we're going to watch that thing go up. It's 11,000 pounds. How cool is that? Of this declaration that we love Jesus, that we want to make him known. And so we're going to raise that big old cross. And here's the other good thing. We own this. Right? For eight years, we've been giving someone else money. And now we get to invest in our own future. It's just an exciting time. I also would love you to join us November 5th. That's a Monday night. We're going to have the architect here. And he's going to be giving us, with his computer, a 3D virtual tour of the space. We'll have materials where you can kind of feel the wood that will be in there and the block and the metal and all the different stuff. And you can really kind of get a sense of, of what we're going to be moving into. It's a very, very exciting time. But here's the warning. And I've actually gotten this warning from multiple people. Because what I've been doing is I've gone, man, I've never been through this before. Let me get in touch with some people who have been through something like this. And so I get with every leader and people who are ahead of me in ministry that, that have gone through something like this. And, and I'm taking them to lunch and saying, hey, what can I learn? What can I expect? What should we do? How should this work? And more, uh, probably about three people have told me, hey, watch out. I'm going, What? Like, this thing just feels nothing but exciting. They've said, hey, watch out. Because what happens more often than you think is that when a church moves into their own space like this, it feels like a finish line. And the church that used to really love their neighbors and care about other people just becomes selfish and inward. And just watch out that that doesn't happen. And in fact, a lot of this series is born out of a desire to say, hey, how do we not let that happen? 
I don't want to be part of that. That's not a culture that honors God. That's not a culture that's fun to be part of. I don't want any part of that at all. Right, this is like the, the couple that they date and they have so much fun and there's all this creativity and every little holiday is a chance to celebrate while they're dating. And then they get married. And now they don't really date anymore and they don't really go anywhere overnight anymore. They shouldn't do that before they're married. <laughs> but they, they did their honeymoon, they don't do it again. Y'all, y'all, now I got your attention, now you're with me. Right, but they just go, well, we're, you know, I got the girl. She can't go anywhere now. That's not the attitude we want to have. We want to keep pursuing God. We want to keep loving our neighbors. We want to keep creating a culture that honors the Lord. So that's where we are in this season. Now, the second place we are, if you don't think chronologically, you think geographically, here's where we are. We're in this place. In fact, literally, you can look on the map in just a moment and see the the dot is where we are. I mean, this is the place we're at. We're in the Southeast Valley. We're in this Williams Gateway area. We're at this convergence of Gilbert and Mesa and Queen Creek and a lot of people from Santan Valley and East Mesa and Apache Junction. We're kind of in this, this place. This is where we are. We're not in Athens. We're not in Chandler. We're not in Scottsdale. We're here. And this is a time where we can put down roots in this community. In fact, that's what we called our very first initiative to be able to buy the land. We called it Roots. We said, hey, we want to put down roots here for a long time. And that's a tricky thing because a lot of people don't have roots here. Almost everybody in this community is new to Phoenix in general and new to the Southeast Valley, Queen Creek type area in particular. Let me just ask you by a show of hands. How many of you born and raised whole life Arizona natives? Put your hand up. Okay, keep them up. Now, everyone else, look around at these freak shows. (laughs) Look how few of them there are, right? There are not many of you. You can put your hands down. Let me ask you, how many of you grew up basically in the same area that you live in now? Even fewer, right? Way to go. Thank, by the way, all of you, thank you for letting us invade the nice place that you (laughs) lived, and now it's not what it used to be, and the traffic's worse. Thank you for welcoming us in, all right? But here's what's fascinating about that. So many of you didn't raise your hands, right? This is why the D-backs and the Suns and the Cardinals are everyone's second favorite team, (laughs) right? You come here and you root for the Broncos or you root for the Patriots or you root for whoever you rooted for, but you don't root for those teams. Well, you kind of do if your team's not on TV, right? You don't have loyalty here. I I didn't. I often have to work to to have it. Even if you grew up in the Phoenix area, you didn't grow up here. Now, that presents us with a remarkable opportunity. Because here's what I've noticed in the 16 years that I've lived in Arizona, the 10 that I've lived out here in Queen Creek. People are not from here. So you'd think, okay, they're going to probably want community. They're going to probably want and need friendship. But we don't. We don't pursue it. Have you noticed this? Right, because when the weather's nice and you actually want to be outside, it's dark at 5 o'clock. So you don't spend much time in the front yard. You spend time in the backyard because you have lights on out there. And speaking of yards, your wall, your yard is surrounded by a big concrete wall, which I'm thankful for because I don't want kids drowning in my pool. Right, so I get why that's there, but it doesn't create a very neighborly thing. Right, and so 
so you have people who aren't from here who are dying for community, who are dying for friendship. If they have kids especially, they probably don't have parents or family nearby, so they need all kinds of child care help. Right? This is a huge opportunity for the church. This is an opportunity to love our neighbors, to build community and friendship, to pursue an agenda of not allowing people to be or stay lonely. Another huge opportunity for our church in this community, this is a community that has a lot of people who care about marriage and parenting and family, many of whom came from families that weren't all that healthy. And yet here they are in this nice area, having kids, building a marriage, building a family, and not knowing what to do about it. This is why one of the things our church is doing increasingly is having lots of opportunities to help people enrich and build their marriage and their parenting. Because our community needs that. Another thing that's interesting about this far Southeast Valley is we are inundated with choices. Have you noticed this? I mean, we have choices about all kinds of stuff. Do you want to go to Lowe's or Home Depot or Ace? No, I want to go to Amazon, right? Like, I mean, what, what do you, there's choices about everything. Have you had to make the choice of where to send your kids to school? I mean, it's just do you want to go to this public school or this public school or this public school or this charter school or this charter school or this charter school or this Christian school? It's endless. And here's the thing. They're all good options. What gym do you want to go to? Do you want to go to LA Fitness or Pure Fitness or Anytime Fitness or Mountainside Fitness? Or do you just want to go to one of the million CrossFit boxes that are all over your place? Like, where do you want to go? Like, there's just endless choices. Now, here's the thing. There's a lot that's good about that because I went yesterday to Walmart and I got a basketball for less than five bucks. So having choices and having like good prices, for, that's cool. Here's the problem. That consumer identity that we have, where we're always looking for the best deal and the best this and the best that, we're always shopping around, we bring that with us to church. And so the church doesn't become about community and about family. It becomes about, well, I like that preacher and I like that music. And I'm going to call the church to see, well, who's leading worship today? Because I might go to this other place. And I'm going to just kind of view the church as this buffet that I kind of sample from. It's like going to Costco and getting all these little tastes of everything I like. And so we have this interesting place as a church where here we are, where we're trying to meet people's needs who are lonely, who are isolated, who are often far from family, and we need to love and serve them. At the same time, we have to push back on the consumerism. We have to preach things even when it hurts. We have to have some days where you come to church, you go, oh man, I love that. And other days where you go, I hated that. I don't think I'm ever going back. That made me so angry. We need to live in that tension because here we are. And here's the other thing about our community, and this is the part that makes me so sad, is we're a community that kind of has it together on the outside, right? The, everything's new. The houses look nice. We, most of us have HOAs, and so the yards look fairly nice. But there's a lot of pain on the inside. And that leads us to the third place that we are. We're in this cultural moment. Where are we? Well, we're in this season, 10 years, about to move into a building. We're in this place, but we're in this cultural moment. And the way I would describe the cultural moment that we're in, if we zoom out, not just here in this part of the valley, but increasingly all over our state and country, we're in a place where pain and hopelessness seem like they're on the rise, and where confidence in the church is on the decline. That's an interesting place to be. Pain 
and hopelessness rising. Even within the church, that's true. I know this because a couple of years ago, I asked all of you who were here at that point, some of you remember this, I said, hey, I'm going to go on a week-long prayer retreat, and I want to pray for every person in our church. So would you take a note card and just write a prayer request on it? And if you write a prayer request, I'll pray for it. And I spent a week going through those prayer requests and doing that. And I came back, and it was absolutely clear that in our church, those of us that have Jesus, that are trying to hold on to him as hard as we can, our church was filled with pain. And a lot of us feeling like, I'm in pain, and I don't really know if I have hope that it'll ever get better. And that's us in the church. That's us who do have a hope in Christ. Think about all the people outside the church family who don't have that hope. And so this is why you see all kinds of evidence that pain and hopelessness is rising. We've already talked about loneliness. This is ironic, isn't it? We're surrounded by people all the time. We've never been more technologically connected. And yet that actually contributes to our loneliness. Randy Frazee calls it crowded loneliness. I saw a picture of this when I was at BlackRock a couple months ago, and I just took this secret picture of these four friends who said, let's go get coffee. Here they are enjoying coffee, but not each other. And and, and I'm not trying to pick on young people because I see this everywhere. You go to any restaurant. I mean, you just go to a restaurant, you'll see 50-something people fiddling with their phones. It's everywhere. We're surrounded by people. We're surrounded by connectivity. We think technology is going to help us stay connected and be social, and it just makes us more isolated. It also, it means we're rising in stress, in anxiety, in depression. And this doesn't just impact adults, this impacts the next generations. One of the recent local newspapers just came out and they said in the last 15 months in the East Valley, last 15 months, there have been 31 suicides among middle and high school students. Two a month. kids with adult size pain. There's family dysfunction. A lot of us are just trying our best to figure it out, right? Like, I mean, tons of us come from a situation where our parents were divorced or there's a divorce close to us and we don't really know what does this even look like. And even if our parents stayed together, maybe wasn't all that healthy. And and so we're just trying to figure this all out. And that's, that's how everybody is in this community. And so those aren't the only things rising. Here's the thing that's fascinating, because all that's been rising, I mean, just since Adam and Eve ate the fruit, right? There's been pain, and that's just gone on forever and ever. Here's the thing that's different. 50 years ago, people might have been going through all that and thought, I know what I'll do. I'll go to church. Or they might have even said it this way, I'll go back to church. I guess I need to go to church. Now, here's the thing. I am not pining for 50 years ago. Because, by the way, 50 years ago was the 60s. <laughs> not the bastion of Christian strength in America, okay? So I'm not saying, like, let's just all nostalgically look back to when it was good. It wasn't good then either. The difference was people thought, oh, I'll look to the church. I think maybe the church has answers. But now people don't think that. A growing number of people in our city would identify themselves, researchers from the Pew Research Center would call them nuns. By that, they don't mean N-U-N-S, like sound of music, nun, habit, not that kind of nun, but nuns, N-O-N-E-S, 
As in, I'm filling out a survey, what's my religion? Am I Christian? Am I Jewish? Am I Muslim? Am I Buddhist? Uh, am I atheist? Nah, I'm none. I'm none. Not thinking about it. That's the growing, that's the fastest growing segment in those surveys around our country and in our state. In fact, in Phoenix, 61% of millennials, so that's people kind of that like 20 to 35 of millennials would identify as nuns. 61%. Three out of five. And and get this. These folks are not like hardcore atheists. These aren't Richard Dawkins disciples who are just mad at God that they don't believe in. They're like my friend Jeff who go, eh, I don't care. It just doesn't matter to me. Like, I'm glad you find something that works for you, but I just don't care. There's no sense that I ought to go to church, that I should go to church, that Sunday mornings are for church. There's no sense of that. And I don't know why there would be. These are people that didn't grow up in church many of the times, or they grew up in church and they went, you know what, I've been through that. It's filled with hypocrisy. It's filled with judgment. There's no place for doubt. You know, I kind of maybe sort of believe in God, but I just have all these questions and doubts. It doesn't feel like the church is a safe place to ask those questions, so I'm, I'm out. It's rigid. They believe a bunch of narrow stuff. It's not authentic. And so, here we are. What do we do with that? That's what Paul had to figure out in Athens. Here all these people are, and they're not very interested in what I'm selling, right? No one showed up in Athens like, oh, Paul, you made it. Thank you. We've been hoping you'd tell us about Jesus. So what's his option? His option is to retreat. You know, well, this probably isn't going to work here. I guess people just don't want it. Or it's to move toward them in love and compassion. It's to move toward them with the confidence that Jesus actually is the one who gives hope to the hopeless. And that's the opportunity that we have. Here's some of the good news in the research. Actually, 20% of these millennial nuns have said, I would go to church if someone I knew invited me. I'd go. A lot of them would go, I don't even know what it is. And I have this caricature of Christian people from the media, but I don't really, I've never been to church. We get, every week, we get people who've never been to church who come here. Some of you right now are like, oh my gosh, I came and they're talking about me. How did they know? <laughs> I didn't know. It's just, just God had you here. And this happens all the time. And, and we, we started this church to help connect with people like you so that you would have hope in a world that is increasingly hopeless. And this is what we offer as the people of God. Our faith is built on hope for the hopeless. Right? The father of our faith is Abraham. Abraham and Sarah had this great promise from God that out of them was going to flow this great nation. But one big problem, they couldn't have kids. And not just for a few months and then a year and then another year, but for more than a decade more than two decades, they begin to go, is there any hope? And yes, there's hope. Because God is a God that gives hope to the hopeless. The nation of Israel came out of Abraham's loins as Isaac, that promised son, was given by God in his grace. Then many years later, 
the people of Israel found themselves in another hopeless situation. There they were, having multiplied in this nation of Egypt. And even though they were big in numbers, they were still not very powerful. And so this dominating cultural empire of Egypt had them in slavery. And it looked hopeless. And it looked lost. And when they'd cry out to God, things only seemed to get worse. And yet God was working because God's a God who gives hope to the hopeless. And so God called Moses, a stammering, stuttering, 80-year-old who had killed a man in his earlier life, who thought that all of God's use of him had passed him by. And God called him and said, I'm going to use you. So Moses, get in there and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh goes, who are you? What are you going to do? And God says, I got some stuff I can do. Because I'm a God who gives hope to the hopeless. And so he sets those people free. And he releases them into a promised land. And then one of those descendants came to ultimately give hope to the hopeless. His name was Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ was the one who preached good news of a kingdom that would come. And all of that good news and all of that hope seemed to be extinguished on that Friday afternoon. When the sun turned dark, when the earth began to quake, when everything looked hopeless, when all the people who had put their trust in Jesus, who had hoped that he was bringing the kingdom, found themselves discouraged and despairing as the one they loved had been tortured and killed on the cross. They weren't waiting around going, hey guys, just give it a couple days. He's going to rise. They were running, scared, despairing, hopeless. But God is a God that gives hope to the hopeless. And they didn't stay hopeless because Jesus didn't stay dead. And Jesus rose, and Jesus is victorious over Satan, and Jesus is victorious over sin, and Jesus is victorious over death, and Jesus is victorious over anxiety and depression and family breakdown and all the different things that wreck our lives. Jesus gives us hope in the midst of those situations because God is a God that gives hope to the hopeless, and we are here. In this moment of our church's history, in this place, in this cultural situation where people don't think the church has anything to offer, and we say, you know what? We don't have that much to offer, but Jesus does. He can give you hope. He can give you a future. He can give you forgiveness. Let's tell you about him. And let's love you in a way where even if it doesn't all make sense at first, you go, there's something about this that must be true because nobody loves like they do. So that's the reality that we're defining today. That's where we are. This moment in time, this place, this situation. What an exciting time. We stand at the edge looking to a preferred future. Who is God calling us to be given that we're here? That's what we're going to look at next week. I hope you'll join us. Let me pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the hope that comes through Jesus Christ. God, I pray for all of us who are struggling with loneliness, who are struggling with stress, who are struggling with anxiety and depression, who are 
discouraged because of how our families feel dysfunctional. God, would you give us hope? And would that hope come in the person of Jesus? God, prepare us as a church to be your hands and feet in this world, to be the best friend that this community has because you're the best friend we could ever have. We pray it in Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well,